Right, well, good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to that passage that Marty just read. It's in Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, so it should be easy to find this morning, the book of Genesis, and then you're going to be looking for chapter 17 is what we're going to be reading this morning. It was pretty funny. Um, as many of you know, I was uh, out traveling a lot over the last two weeks, and, and I was on the plane ride on one of the trips, and I was really enjoying studying the passage that I was thought I was supposed to be preaching this Sunday. It's the end of Genesis chapter 17 going into 18 about God's promise to Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have this son named Isaac. I thought that's what I was going to be preaching today only to get off the plane really excited about that passage and find out on our sermon planning document that I was doing the beginning of Genesis 17 which meant I get the joy of speaking about circumcision this morning. So wasn't quite as excited about that at the beginning of the reading. But I will tell you this, God's word in all of its places is both true and it is profitable. And that is no different than what we find in this passage. Because really, at the heart of this passage is not the physical act of circumcision. It's two other C words that I want us to to think about and ponder on together this morning. It's the words confirmation and consecration. One is God's part. He confirms his promises. One is our part. A life of consecration. Now, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, what you need to know is that in Genesis chapter 15, so just a few chapters back, uh, God entered into a binding covenantal relationship with Abram. Abram didn't deserve this. He had done nothing to earn it. But God said, I am going to be your God and you are going to be blessed. He gave Abram some pretty incredible promises. He said, I'm going to give you a son and your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to bless you and make you exceedingly abundant, fruitful. It was incredible blessings. Now, Abram at this time, he had no son. He had no land, and yet it said in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, that's a significant theme. I hope you don't miss that. Throughout this whole thing, he says he credit it to Abraham as righteousness, his faith. And so, of course, the New Testament picks up on this theme that salvation comes through faith alone, not through our works. That is how we receive the righteousness of God. But after God ratified that covenant in chapter 15, many years went by, and it seemed like God was not going to come through on his promise. And so in chapter 16, last week you guys talked about this, how Abram and Sarah said, you know what? We're going to take things into our own hands. If God's not going to come through his promise and he's not going to give us a son, well, then let's take our, our servant, Hagar, and we'll have a baby through her. As you can imagine, that was a disastrous plan. Not a great plan. As soon as Hagar conceived, it says that Sarai uh, was jealous, that she disliked Hagar immediately, and they cast Hagar in with her new uh, baby, the baby that was about to be born, Ishmael, out. Thankfully, God took care of Hagar, and yet it was a big mess. Chapter 16 was as messy of a family situation as you can get into. Well, after that, 13 more years passed by, and that brings us to chapter 17. I think sometimes we read these passages like chapter 15, 16, 17, thinking, well, these happened right after each other. No, that's not the case. By this point, Abram is 99 years old. Sarah, his wife, is 90 years old, and they still don't have the kids together. I want you to think about that. That is 25 years from the the time that God had begun to make these promises to Abram. 25 years of waiting. 
I wonder how many of us in this room with all the instant gratification, the instant answers we can get from Siri or whatever else, how many of us are willing to stand on God's word, believe God's word, even when it seems like he's not bringing it to fulfillment? That's what Abram and Sarah were called to do in this text. It's the life of a Christian is waiting on God's promises. But as we're going to see the confirmation, God, the very first thing you see in this text in chapter 17 is this. We see the confirmation God gives. One thing that I am very thankful for is that God is way more patient with us than we are with him. Do you agree with that? He's way more patient with us than we are with him. For most of us, when we've been let down by someone, we say, well, that's the, that's the end of that. But God does not treat his children like that. No matter how messy Abraham made the situation in chapter 16, the message of chapter 17 is this. God always fulfills his promises. He always does what he says he's going to do. And I love how he does this. Look at verse 1. At the very beginning, what does God say to Abram? He says, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. This is significant because after years of silence where Abram has not heard from God, God comes and he speaks to him again, but he comes with a new name. He comes with a new disclosure. You have to remember, Abram doesn't know everything about God like we do. We don't ha- he didn't have the word. He only knew what God revealed to him. And so in this passage, he comes with this new name, I am God Almighty. In essence, communicates this idea, the phrase El Shaddai. It's a powerful phrase that, in essence, communicates this idea that that God is all-sufficient. He's the all-competent God, the God who knows exactly what he's going to do. But not only that, he has the power to do it. For 13 years, Abram had had been learning the painful inadequacy of his own efforts, plans, and wisdom. I don't know about you, but I have about 35 years of experience of doing the same thing of learning through painful situations, my own inadequacy, my own uh, lack of wisdom, my own lack of power to to do what I want to do or to do what God wants me to do. Abram had learned that lesson, and so now God comes to him and he says, I want you to learn a new thing about me. I am El Shaddai. I'm able to do everything I desire to do in the timing I desire to do it. As you take a moment and look at the promises down through that chapter, What you're going to notice is that they are entirely dependent upon God alone. Look at that. He says, I will multiply you greatly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will establish you. I will give you this land. He even says one thing in the past tense. He says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. How can God say that? Abram was not a father of the multitude of nations. God can say that because when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. That's why he can put it in the past tense. This is going to come about because I am El Shaddai. As as I was reading this text this week, I couldn't help but remember a song that I learned as a child. And I would imagine many of you, if you grew up in any kind of church setting, you probably heard this song as well. But it's very simple. And there's motions so that you can memorize it. Although Rachel and I were fighting over what the motions actually were. But my version was, our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. That's the one Rachel didn't like. I was like, that's how we did. Mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. How many of you knew that song? Yeah, many of you? Bigger question for you this morning is this. How many of you have you actually believed the words of that song? 
that God is so big, so mighty, there is nothing that our God cannot do. That's the more important question for you to answer this morning. You think about this. Abram, from his own, um, it's one of those places, I know many of you know the end of the story, but I wish you didn't. I wish you could sit with the tension of Abram's heart in this moment. Yes, he had a promise from God that he would have a son and that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars. But when Abram looked in the mirror, you know what he saw? A 99-year-old body. He saw his 90-year-old wife who couldn't have children. Yes, God had given him this promise that he had set apart this land, but you want to know what he saw when he looked out his window? He saw a vast array of Canaanites who would be against him. Abram, to Abram, I'm sure these promises seem like they were impossible. But friends, I'm here to tell you that nothing is impossible with our God. It shouldn't be in our vocabulary either. I would imagine that for many of you in this room, there are people in your life that you have desired to to bring to church, to invite to worship, but in your mind you've said it's impossible for that person to ever know Jesus. For some of you, you're praying for something. And you're looking at your circumstance and you say, well, I might as well not pray. That's impossible. Some of you are looking at the mess of your lives. There's something really messy going on. You hear that promise, the new covenant promise, that Jesus can take all things and use them for our good and his glory. And you say, that's impossible. Our God is the God of the impossible. I want you to write this statement down. I heard it from a pastor named Alistair Begg, and I think it fits in this passage. He said this, God's promises must always be seen in light of the character of the one who makes them. God's promises must always be seen in the light of the character of the one who makes them. God is not like the people in your past who made grand promises but did not have the character to live up to them. I think sometimes we lack trust in God because at the end of the day, you know our problem? We don't really know Him. We don't really know His character. We've not stepped out into the deep end of the pool trusting that God is actually with us, that He is all-powerful. In this passage, Abram was frail, but God was El Shaddai. Canaan was full of people against Abram, but God was El Shaddai. Sarai was 90 years old and unable to have kids, but God was El Shaddai. The same is true this morning. I would imagine that many of you in this room are facing circumstances where you feel utterly out of control. You feel weak beyond imagination. Let me just tell you this morning, God is El Shaddai. Your God is El Shaddai. Some of you are in a place of confusion. You've got lots of questions about what's happening in your life. God is El Shaddai. Some of you are facing a financial crisis. You don't know how you're going to make ends meet. Some of you have a relational crisis in your life. Maybe it's with a friend, a family member, somebody at work. Some of you are in major work crisis. Maybe some of you are looking for a job. You need to know our God is El Shaddai. He is the God that can do anything in his own timing. God has done an incredible work. He is El Shaddai. I wonder this morning, do you know this God? This El Shaddai, all-powerful, all-competent God. I love what happens next. When you know God in a new way, it can't help but change you. 
And that's what happens with this confirmation that, that God gives to, to Abram. Right as he enters into this covenantal relationship with Abram and Sarah, he's making these promises. What does he do? He gives both Abram and Sarah a new name. Their name were Abram. God changes in verse 5. Look at it. He changes Abram's name to Abraham, which is a tangible reminder that he's not just a father. That's what Abram meant. But he's a father of a multitude. That's what Abraham means. And then verse down in verse 15, Sarai's, Sarai's name, was, which, which meant contentious, is forever changed to Sarah, which means princess, pointing to the royal line that would come from her womb. It's incredible. As they're brought into this new relationship, identity, he says, you are a, confirms his promises, he changes their names. He gives them a new identity, he says, you are a new creation. Well, church family, are you not so glad that God has done the same for us? Under the new covenant, we have been given new names. Because of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection, at one time we were once called strangers to the promises of God. We were once called rebels. We were once called enemies of God, children of wrath. But now because of the new covenant that Jesus has brought about, the moment we put our trust in him, the Bible says we become sons. We become daughters. We become heirs and co-heirs with Christ. We become friends of God. It's incredible. Under this new covenant, we are given a new identity, new names. And he who is El Shaddai becomes our perfect father. It's an incredible picture. This morning, if you are a Christian, do you live as if God is El Shaddai? I wonder right now, in your present circumstances, are you living in light of this truth that your father, who has given you a new name, has all the power in the world to do whatever he desires to do in your life, for your good and for his glory? It's an incredible picture. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to know this morning, this new relationship with God is available to you today. There's no waiting necessary there's nothing that you're facing in your life. There's nothing that you've done in your past that is outside the power of God to come into your life and radically change you. He has the power. He is God El Shaddai. But it does require that you turn from yourself, turn from your sin, and put your faith in him and what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. This is the confirmation that God gives. But then you see the response that is our calling. And that's the second thing we see in this text, the consecration that God requires. This passage is significant because it's the very first time God reveals a response that we are to have to his covenant. Up until this point, Abram had, had walked as if it was a one-sided relationship, but now God invites Abram into a new kind of relationship, and he tells him how to live. In verse 1, what does he say? He says, I am God Almighty. Here's what we are called to do. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. These words characterize what the Bible would call holiness. A life of consecration. A life of being set apart from the world entirely for Jesus Christ. To walk before God really is a call to live every aspect of our lives with a habitual awareness that his presence is with us. How many of you live all of your life as if God, El Shaddai, is with you? 
Think about your actions. Uh, there was a statement by Charles Spurgeon, who was a great preacher uh, from about 150 years ago. But his words are just as relevant today as they were then. He said this, Of the most of mankind I may say, that if there were no God, their course of action would not be different from what it is. For they do not feel themselves either restrained or constrained by any sense of the divine presence. I don't want you just to sit in a sermon. I want you to think about your life this morning. Really think about it. Are your actions, are your motives, are your behaviors, are your words from the last week, are they any different because of your awareness that the divine presence of God is with you? What about at work? What about for some of you? Is was your self-control at the bar or on that shopping spree or on the internet? Was it any or habits at home? Your awareness that Jesus is with you. Or habits at home. The, the words that you use when you speak to your spouse, the priorities that you reveal to your kids. Are they any different? Because you know that everywhere you go, everything you do, both public and private, is in the sight of El Shaddai, our God. Spurgeon continues, he says, This is the mark of the truly sanctified man of God, that he lives in every place as standing in the presence chamber of the divine majesty. He acts as knowing that the eye which never sleeps is always fixed on him. His heart's desire is that he may never do the wrong thing and may never forget the right thing. The saint feels that he must not, dare not transgress because he is before the very face of God. This is the model of the sanctified character for a man to realize what the Lord is and then to act as if in the immediate presence of a holy God. That's why he says, walk before me and be blameless. Be totally set apart for me as if everything you do is in my sight because it is. Friends, this is one of the main questions I have for you this morning. Is a consecrated life the main aim of your life? I think there are many of you in this room that, that all of your life is geared toward, man, i got to have my family be the right thing. There's a lot of you in this room that say, man, my job has got to become this. This is the aim of my life. There are some of you that are about to graduate high school, go to college, and you're like, college education, that is the aim of my life. God calls one thing. He says, walk before me. Make that the one all-encompassing aim of your life. If you're anything like me, when you hear that, you do exactly what Abram did in this passage. Look at verse 3. It says that Abram fell on his face before the Lord. Here's the thing. The closer you get in your walk with Christ, the more time you're going to find you are on your knees before God, totally feeling totally inadequate to live that consecrated life, and yet knowing that he alone is adequate to do that for you. We all fall short of wholehearted allegiance to Christ, and yet the call on the Christian is to move forward, for us to keep aiming, to confess our sin, to confess where we fall short, and to get up and go again. It's what Paul says in the book of Philippians. He says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press his own. Because, I love this, Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's saying, I have this covenantal relationship with him. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It says, I strain, I I make it my every desire to live a consecrated life before our God. Well, God gives Abram an an immediate act of obedience. He says, if you're going to be consecrated to me, if you're going to be set apart, here's one immediate act that I want you to do. And he introduces this idea that we know as circumcision. Verse 10. He said, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He says, here's the one thing I want you to do. Right off the bat, be circumcised. Now, I won't get into the details here, as it may make many of you squeamish this morning. But to put it simply, circumcision involves the cutting off of flesh as a visible sign of a people belonging to the covenant community of God. It actually was not a new thing in that culture. You may think God invented it. No, it was already around. And yet God gave it divine significance here because when a person was circumcised in that day as a part of the covenant community, here's what it meant. It meant, number one, first and foremost, they were submitted to God. That they had acted in obedience to God. Number two, it means that they had discarded their old life. That was a picture. The flesh was a picture of their old life. They had discarded it, and now they were gods. And third, that they were publicly identifying with the people of God. So the main thing you need to understand about circumcision is it, it, it shows us this important spiritual truth that sinful flesh had to be taken away or a people would remain impure and out of covenant with God. It was an outward sign of the inner reality of their submission to God. That's why in the New Testament we no longer hear about outward circumcision. In fact, Paul says outward circumcision doesn't do you any good. What the New Testament talks about is what? Circumcision of the heart. He says, what really matters is what takes place inside you. Have you truly given, turned away from your flesh and surrendered all of your soul, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your emotions to Jesus Christ? Only the person who puts their faith in Jesus can have a new heart. And that's what the New Testament calls for. We see this in Colossians 2 verse 11. It says, in him... Talking about Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so here's what he's getting at. He's saying, because of what Jesus has done for us, he has taken our sin and it was nailed to the cross with him. He's taken the punishment for our sin and therefore he can do the work of a heart circumcision. He changes us taking the dead away and giving us new life. And yet, there's an outward sign. With the, if you remember back to the earlier part of Genesis, when God entered into a covenant with Noah, what did he do? He said, here's your outward sign, the rainbow. Here with, with Abraham, he gives him an outward sign. He gives him the picture of circumcision. 
But do you realize in our new tent that with Jesus, we too have an outward sign. We have a one-time event that shows that we are, number one, submitted to God. Number two, that the old person is dead. And number three, that we are identifying ourselves with God's people. Do you know what that is? Baptism. It's the outward sign of what's happened in our heart. That's why there's a connection to baptism in this text. And yet baptism, I think, is cool because it goes further than circumcision. While circumcision was putting away of some flesh, what does baptism do? It's the burial of all flesh. Circumcision says, hey, here's a piece that needs to be removed. Baptism says, no, the whole person has to die with Christ so that, like Christ, they can be raised and have new life. They can be given a new name. They can be a new creation in me. I love Romans 6.3. It says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, the spiritual meaning is the most important part about circumcision. And yet, it doesn't mean that Abraham didn't have to go through with the physical act. I'm sure Abraham had many objections to being circumcised at 99 years old. And yet God didn't say, hey, as long as you get the spiritual part, you don't have to go do the outward. No, he said, go and be circumcised. I think there are many of you in this room that you have been saved. You've given your life to Jesus. He has changed you. He's made you a new person. You have received that inner circumcision of the heart. You've been made new. And yet, for whatever reason, you have failed to be obedient to taking that step forward of making that what's happened inside outward through baptism. I've talked to many of you. I know many of you are nervous. You say, I don't know about if I can do my testimony. I I, I need to wait for this to happen or I need to wait for that to happen. Friends, let me just tell you, there's never a good reason for disobedience. When we become Christians, we are called to take the step of baptism. As an outward picture of our submission to God, our connection to the community of faith, and our picture of us being dead, totally cleansed, and raised new with Christ. Today, if you have not taken that step, let me just encourage you. Take the step of baptism. It's a very important part of your spiritual journey. If you're interested in baptism, there's a sign-up on the, the next steps corner here on the right in the foyer. We'd love to talk to you more about baptism, what that means, and even schedule one if you're ready to do so. As we close, I have to ask, what are you going to do with this sermon? I think for many of us, a lot of times we kind of put that in the file of there's another sermon or we just throw it in the wastebasket as we're leaving. But here's the question for you. What are you going to do with this message? God has given you very precious promises. He has called you to live a consecrated life. What action steps are you going to take? And verse, down in verse 23, if you go down toward the end of the chapter, After God has called Abraham, he's given him this one step. What does it say? On that very day, Abram went and circumcised. I want you to hear this this morning. When God says go, he means today and not tomorrow. When God says be consecrated, repent, he means be consecrated today, not tomorrow. When God says come to me, he means come today, not tomorrow. As your pastor and your friend, I want to tell you this. Today, not tomorrow, is the day to respond to God. What is he calling you to this morning? 
What areas of life are, are you not consecrated to him? You own those areas. Would you confess that this morning? We're going to close our service with another outward act of this new covenant we've been given by Jesus, but this is not a one-time follower of Jesus to continue an act where you identify with Jesus, but he calls us as if you're a follower of Jesus to continually, as we gather together, to take communion with one another. What I love about communion is this is the picture of the fulfillment of what he promised Abraham. He promised Abraham that through your lineage will be a king, and there was a king, it just wasn't the king the world expected. King Jesus came and he came and he took the punishment for sin that we deserved. He came and his body was broken, which is symbolized by the bread that we're going to take together in just a moment. His blood was poured out on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven. And that's symbolized by the cup, by the juice that we're going to take this morning. Jesus calls us to take this to remember his sacrifice for us. To remember that he has said yes to every promise he's ever made and that we can trust him. As we take this, we remember his death, but we also proclaim his return. We proclaim what he has done for us.